Hey everybody, this is Chad and Mark with I Want to Know, and we got our special guest today, Nick the Promise Ring, uh, UFC fighter, MMA fighter. You're not employed by the UFC anymore, are you? No, 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 no. No. Uh, I've been out since about 2013. Nice. And then you've had a couple fights since then, haven't you? A couple, yeah. I had a boxing fight, a couple MMA fights, but you know, I haven't done anything since 2015. Are you officially retired, or do you still take a fight? Yeah. I have not officially retired, but uh, I don't think I have much interest in you know going through a training camp and doing all that. I mean, that, that's one of those things you don't just pick it up and put it down at will. Yeah, it's not like riding a bike. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? You don't you don't get better like a fine wine. You know, as a fighter, right? <laughs> Nice, nice. So the, uh, um, you're, but you're not saying you're never out or you're never going to fight again. Well, you know what I mean. In life, you. At different stages in life, you focus on different things, I think. So, I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i 39 at the moment. It's just, uh, I think my killer instinct is pretty much gone, you yeah, know. Yeah. Like, it's it's not the same anyway. So, I mean, I don't have the, I don't have the desire to spend the long hours in the gym that it really requires. And Absolutely. Yeah. So, with that in mind, uh, a classic question from the guys that sit on the couch. I could take that guy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you tell those guys when they say... I, I could do that. What do you? What's the time frame they're looking at? What's the commitment they're looking at? Are Just you in, a, in a nutshell. Couch potato to like amateur fight. Couch potato to amateur fight. Well, there's there is no way around it. I mean, you're going to be working long hours, and uh, uh, it's going to be very individual because everybody's got uh, different aptitudes. Yeah. Obviously, some people are. You know, they they learn quicker. They got better coordination. You know, like a. I've seen some pretty old guys get into the ring. Like I've seen guys start at like age thirty-five, and yeah. you know, make good careers. Actually, uh, Francis Singano. Well, <laughs> Bill Mahood. He was another guy who, you know, in the Canadian martial arts scene. I mean, yeah, he was thirty-five when he started fighting, and yeah. you know, he made it to the UFC at. Uh, yeah. Uh, Didn't you have like a twenty-two second? Was it a knockout or a TKO on Bill Mahood? Wasn't that your No, best? it wasn't. Uh, I think it was round two. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a round two one. That, that was my first MMA fight. Uh, you know, that was my first fight, though. I mean, I, I'd already been quite, quite prominent in kickboxing and stuff. So Right, yeah, yeah. But uh, Cool. The uh, I got a ton of questions for you. you. We look guests up online and trying to find some like real good information. <laughs> and you, you are like the secret MMA fighter. There's not a whole bunch on you. We were <laughs> reading this one article that uh, said your net worth was uh, about ten million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, if you did it out of USC and Hard Knocks, then uh, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be driving a Cal- Cavalier if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I thought it was funny. Because very few make it to that that pinnacle of the sport, right? Like it's it's truly for the love of the game for most guys. Yeah, you know what? Um, no, I never made I never made a whole lot of money doing this. Uh, uh, on the side of my MMA career, I was making some investments, so I, I was very smart with my money in that regard. So awesome. you know, I took uh, took the money, I dumped it into houses, and you know, so that's what I'm doing right now. Is it just I'm property managing and all that kind of nice. stuff? So. I mean, it's just basic, running a basic business. That's what I'm doing at this yeah. point. So, Did you so, go to school for that? Oh, I did not. Actually, I went to school for biology of, <laughs> of all courses. You know, it was the weirdest thing. But when I was in school, uh, I had no interest in economics or uh, anything along those lines. But uh, 
it was after I left school and I started getting into business that, uh, you know, I, I sort of like, uh, got a new appreciation, uh, you know, I went into a new direction from there. It yeah. was, uh, um, I was, I got into real estate actually before I got into the UFC, but, uh, I remember I was doing that ultimate fighter uh, show and I was closing on my first rental property. Like while I was on the show, I, I'd given everything <laughs> to my lawyer, you know, uh, what they do on the, uh, ultimate fighter show too, is they take your cell phone away. There's yeah. no communication with the outside world, no TV, no books, no newspapers, no music, wow. no, no nothing. Right. So yeah. I just kind of had to cross my fingers and hope uh, everything went okay, right? So. <laughs> exactly. So what does that balance look like? Uh, I think a lot of guys don't appreciate that fighting is not something you go and do on the weekends. It's it's a, it's a commitment, but at the same time, it's not like when you're training, it's not like it's paying bills. No. So how, how does that balance work when you, you need to have an employable situation, have a job of some sorts, but you also need to be committing so much time to yeah. training? I... Uh, <clears throat> During my career, I mean, that was one thing I recognized fairly early is that, uh, you know, it's not a secure career, first of all, and it's a short one. Yeah. You know, uh, you've got a very small window, you know, to make a big impact. And, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of it depends on the types of fights you're taking at the right point in your career. And uh, um, if you don't make it, I mean, yeah, you could be, you know... Like, it, it takes a big commitment, training-wise and time-wise, to become a good fighter and, you know, you know to make money in that, I mean, you you may or you may not. And, uh, yeah, you got definitely have to have a backup plan, right? So, yeah. What would you recommend for those guys that are in their, their early 20s right now? They're, they're doing the amateur rounds, they're looking to go pro, but they're also trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life as far as finances go. What would you suggest to those guys to look into? Well, you know what, man? These fighters i've always felt bad for them because it it takes such a big time commitment uh and not only that you're on you're very tired on top of that i mean you're, you're doing these long hours of training and uh two day and three yeah, day a lot of times these guys they're like oh you know i'm too tired to do anything else yeah. right uh but just because yeah just because you're training hard doesn't mean you're gonna make it right. you know like uh um i don't know i don't think it's any excuse just because you're training or fighting to not learn something else on the side, right? I mean, yeah. you, you should be, I, I mean, the way I was gravitating towards was, you know, kind of business. Uh, um, I, I, I joined a, a real estate club, uh, in, uh, 2008 yeah. and, you know, uh, I kept my membership this whole time. I've been, you know, I've been studying like this whole time on, on, on that aspect just to make sure that I was well, you know, I guess well diversified. Yeah, you can make it to a high level as a fighter. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to only focus on that yeah. either, you know. In fact, I mean, if you are a fighter, I think you'd be foolish not to learn something about business, right? Just because. Well, you look at all the top UFC fighters, top paid guys, and they all got something going on the side, right? GSP. Yeah. Um, uh, who are the two uh, brothers? Um, Diaz. The no. Diaz brothers got, uh, I think they've not done, or uh, Nick has not done great with money, but Nate has. Um, the guy that just fought Dominic Cruz, uh, Pettis, the Pettis brothers. They, they own bars all over the United States. Oh. They own restaurants. Like, they do great. T.J. Dillashaw's got his own um, uh, spice company now. He's doing, like, spices and stuff for cooking and cooking books and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the real, real top guys, they're not taking their money and they're not being, you know, like the Rocky or the whoever back in the day. They're And, yeah, I didn't know about those other guys. Uh, one guy I did know about was Uriah Faber. You know, apparently, yeah. he owns a bunch of 
rental property himself. He bought the whole neighborhood yeah. that he, or the, oh, the, the, cul-de-sac, cul-de-sac, the yeah. cul-de-sac that he grew up in and then bought houses for his family and his friends and they all rent from him. And so, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant, I mean, I was going to say you can never go wrong with real estate, but you definitely can go wrong. You definitely can go wrong with real estate. <laughs> you buy the wrong house or, you know, you buy in the wrong market. And oh. uh, yeah, we we're lucky that house we bought here, I bought in 2000. Uh, when would it have been? 2004. So we paid nothing for this house. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a good time because I think in Calgary it was that uh, 2004, 2005, 2006. That's when the, we were at the bottom of the hill at that time. It was just booming. Like, uh, yeah. And I don't think a lot of people saw that it was going to go up so drastically. No. I mean, the economic fundamentals were good, but I think even the investors didn't realize how high it was going to like just skyrocket overnight basically i watch guys buy lots i think probably in 2000 maybe 2008 2009 they were buying lots near downtown or houses the old 50s Mm. bungalows on those 50 foot lots um holding on to them for a week and making 60 grand because they knew somebody else down the road that could uh they could dump it on and a builder or something like that there was lots of guys doing that it was ridiculous because when i bought my first house and it's the house I still live in you know uh, houses at that time it was 2006 uh, they were going up by something like $500 a day that's crazy (laughs) and I just remember uh, this is before I had a cell phone but uh, I would get off the phone with my realtor you know to go look at a house and by the time I had gotten to the house it had already sold yeah it happened to me like 11 or 12 times (laughs) (laughs) I'm like I'm never gonna get into the market like it's never gonna go down I'm never gonna own a home I had a wealthy guy in Calgary I won't mention his name but uh he he had sold a massive company Canadian company for about 60 million dollars and I was doing renovations for him at the time and uh, I was telling him I had this idea we were renovating for this guy he has these you know um 16 unit apartment blocks or 20 unit apartment blocks this little three-story walk-ups i said he's taking them he's completely gutting them and doing them as these uh private hotels and he's selling them for i think it was uh six thousand dollars a month is what he was getting for these things and they're little like bachelor pads so i went and talked to this guy i said hey uh, would you be interested i'll manage i'll look after it i'll put my house up i don't have the same cash you do and he's like yeah if you i'll give you four million dollars you can find a building for four million dollars then we'll get into this together and we'll uh split it 50 50 you manage i'll finance i'm like done deal so i ran out i talked to like a dozen realtors from downtown calgary they could not find a property for sale for me and if one went up it was selling to a family member or buddy or like you you had to be in the right spot at the right time to get one so it was a crazy market here back then Mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh for for some of those big guys that are in into this business i mean you know they're not going to be paying retail for anything like that right uh you know they they find their deals kind of um i guess underground a little bit uh they i mean they've they've got uh they've got good tabs on kind of what's happening and uh who's selling this and that so i mean yeah it's very hard to find something uh uh, i guess competitive that uh maybe a big investor is going to want to buy because you know there has to be sufficient spread in it for them to be interested in the first place right exactly so. yeah and the it was like an old boys club like if you weren't in the club they weren't going to sell to you that's what it felt like when we were oh. looking oh yeah and i mean why would they waste their time right uh, yeah. especially with a rookie and it, it's kind of um you know i'm not trying to say that in a bad way it's just that oh i totally you know, was a rookie <laughs> 
Yeah, I I still feel like a rookie. Yeah. You know? Actually, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I am. Right. It's just uh, with this kind of a business, um, you just got to be you got to you got to stick in it for the long haul. Yeah. Um, and you know what? You learn as you go. You make a lot of mistakes. You just got to embrace it. Yeah. Keep moving forward with it, right? So, one of the guys I worked for, uh, his name was Sid Bosch. He had a plan. So he bought a, a bakery uh, when he was like 22 years old. The guy that owned it was letting it fall apart, and he worked for him. He bought a bakery, did really well with it. Um, so he's like, "Well, I want to buy houses." And his model was that wherever I buy a house. I want the people that lives upstairs to pay the whole mortgage and then I'll build a basement suite for myself. Mm-hmm. And so that was his model. And just every time a house would get to the point that he could remortgage and, and go buy the next one, the next one, he would do that. But he never paid for a single building, right? Like his original down payment and then his investments. So he ended up having like 20 houses around the world, a lot in Canada. I, I did uh, some of these apartment blocks for him, renovated them for him and he would sell them off. And then when he says, when well, I'm ready to retire, I'll just sell a house. I'll live on, pay the taxes and live on that. And then, you know, I've got 20 houses that I can sell off over the next couple of years and they're all going up over time. So he just kept uh, remortgaging them, like. Uh, so I mean, I assume he didn't sell them; he just kept them and then remortgaged them and then bought bought another one. Then correct, right? Yeah, and then yeah. that that so the the first one that had enough equity would pay the down payment yep. on the second one, and then it gets faster and faster and faster. Right? When you have four of them that are gaining equity that you can pull money out of to do down payments, you grow faster. And he, I don't think he went overly fast on it, but like he had twenty houses over you know probably fifteen or eighteen years and. And he never paid a cent for any of them. Like he would, he would mortgage them, he would re- renovate them, and the uh, upstairs people or the majority of the people living in the building, some of them were apartment blocks, would pay for the mortgage and all the repairs and everything else. And then he would just travel around to these houses. You know, he liked being in Montreal, so he had a couple houses in Montreal, and he'd just pick a suite to stay in, or his friends would go there. And he had some overseas, but they were mostly in Canada and the U.S. And it just he seemed to have the perfect plan as far as... Well, you know what, too? He's, he's doing it kind of a... It's a little bit slower of a pace than... Uh, but, I mean, the fact is, you don't need you don't need to own 100 you right. know, to you know, create a good nest egg. Like, uh, I, I find a lot of investors, too, they, uh, you know, they, they move very fast. Um, and, like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's kind of a lifestyle thing, too. I mean, if you really like... Going out there, shaking hands, making deals, and doing it that way. I mean, you can, but uh, yeah, you certainly don't need to to you know, become pretty wealthy pretty fast, right? The uh, the Dave Ramsey story. I don't know if you know who he is. I know who Dave Ramsey is. I he's a Christian. I haven't uh, followed him too much, but uh, I know he's a he's a little bit more on the uh, uh, what do you say? Maybe kind of a conservative side of uh, like finance or whatever. Where he, he is now. So his originally he started buying houses when he was young, and he got into exactly what you were talking about, where um, he figured he could own another hundred houses. So he he would just mortgage anything, and it was really easy when he was doing it. And he owned, I think it was something like two and a half million dollars worth of houses, and uh, but owed like four million on them because he was borrowing for the down payments and he was got it out of hand. And then when the downfall hit, all the banks were recalling their loans. And so all of a sudden, you know, he had to come up with $4 million and he didn't have enough in houses. So um, he ended up going bankrupt and so uh, um, lost almost everything and uh, decided that, well, what's the right way to do this? And he's developed this budgeting and uh, investment 
plan that he did for himself that got him back to being wealthy again, but doing it smartly, not using credit, all those kinds of stuff. So now when he buys houses, he buys them with cash instead of remortgaging off of four houses to get to that one house, which is probably a really good idea. But he comes up with these great budgeting plans and how to get out of debt and all that kind of stuff. So he's a cool guy. But yeah, his original game plan was that. He just got into so many houses and it was so easy. Like you could make up almost any number and say, well, you know, I have four houses and they're all worth $250,000. So I have a million dollars. So they're like, oh, well, they, we uh, evaluate them and they should only be worth this. So you have this much equity. So the bank would make up numbers or the appraiser would, and they would loan guys more money. Um, I met an electrician in uh, Edmonton that did the same thing. He was a Canadian that went down to the States to do it. He ended up owning five houses and then he remortgaged all the houses for as much cash as the bank would allow. And they took all that cash and he came back to Canada. He's like, I don't have to do anything with the houses now. I just let them fall apart. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, can I have my pay right now, please? Because <laughs> he oh, was man. dirty as all ghetto. But uh, that's what people were doing down there, right? You just falsify assessments and taxes and, and never pay the, the land tax. And they were walking away with bucket loads of cash. You know, it's funny. I mean, that was kind of happening here in Alberta, too, back in the days when... Uh, mortgages were just assumable without qualifying. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I had a buddy that did that. His parents bought a house, and then he went over, and they just switched the title. Yeah. He didn't have the credit to buy a house, but he owned one. Well, I have friends that, you know, and this was a little bit before my uh, investing career, but I had friends that were doing that all the time. They were just, you know, taking over mortgages. Uh, like, say, the person was in default or whatever. They could just assume the mortgage without qualifying, and, yeah, they would just wow. take it over. But... I had, um, I, I kind of saw what was happening with this, like a, a, I used to be on a foreclosure list so I could, you know, I could see, you know, um, you which know, houses I was, were going under, which houses were going under, but, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I saw names of actual friends of mine that were on these mortgages <laughs> and I was like, uh, do I contact them or do they know? <laughs> <laughs> I can see you. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't contact them. I was yeah. like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met a guy here in Calgary. They call him Uncle Bob. And his whole career has been out of loaning money to rich people who are on the verge of bankruptcy at like a stupid high interest rate. And so he'll have a Calgary flame call him up and says, oh, I spent way too much time at the casino this weekend. I'm down this much. I can't make my mortgage payment. Can you loan me $8,000? He's like, yeah, give me the Bentley or the Ferrari or the whatever. And when you pay me back, I'll give it back. And he would do it at 35%, I think, is what he was oh doing. Oh, my. Crazy amount. So if they would that hockey player didn't get his shit together then all of a sudden that 35% you're paying what I mean I'm not going to do the math right now but it's a stupid amount of money uh, on a 30 day turnover right so it go, you know whatever that is 11000 then 18000 then $26,000 he says no one ever defaulted on them they always paid them but it's really good money <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh boy crazy that uh, same guy that said he would uh uh, pitch in the $4 million for me to do a building. He lent money out. So he was part of a, a, a group, I think it's like President Clinton and Bono and all that, um, that loan money to countries and they do it at 48%. And so they, they pool large amounts of money and they'll give whatever, I, I'm going to say like Italy, uh, $20 million at 48%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think in Alberta, I think there's a cap on what you're allowed to charge 
for a loan is uh, maybe 18%. I, I think. think it's higher than that. I think, think it was. Yeah. I think it's somewhere in the 40% range is the max that you're allowed to do over compounding over a year, I think was the rule. Because there were some mm-hmm. of those check cashing companies that were doing it and it worked out to like, they'll take all of your money for the whole year and they were still under the whatever it was, 42, 43%. So, oh, yeah. crazy, crazy. People will capitalize on pain. <laughs> it seems like it's a human nature thing to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody likes to live a little bit above their means, right? So yeah. they have to take credit. They they will, right? Yeah. So so how many houses are you running now? Uh, I got four. All right. Yeah. Cool. And so you do all the maintenance. You take care of them, pick up the rent. I do everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like knocking on doors like, yeah. come out. Give me, give me your rent or I'll <laughs> choke you out. <laughs> Oh boy, you know it's a tough business. Is like uh, the properties I have are all forest lawn too. So I mean, uh, what happens there is just. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of lower income kind of a uh, neighborhood, right? So yeah. I mean, you know, you got to collect your rent. You, I, I try to be flexible with people, like wherever I can to to kind of thing. Because uh, I mean, new renters versus waiting a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean. I mean, at the end of the day, you're still dealing with a human beings, right? So, yeah. I mean, you got to be like, you got your own bills to pay, but you also got to, you got to work with people, you yeah. know, as much as you can, right? So, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, we had a, a pro boxer on here um, a few weeks ago and he was suffering from uh, obvious brain damage uh, from boxing. Um, Obviously. (laughs) It it was obvious because they admitted it. The wife says, like, we saw these emotions and things in him, and so he's got his championship and he's going to step out, and uh, they were working on his recovery and stuff like that. You seem like a very bright, uh, well-spoken, well-rounded. Everyone that we talked to about you uh, said, like, he's the nicest guy, he's so easy to get along with. So did you not suffer much from from your career um i've had concussions before um the the thing is with a concussion the way you deal with it is very important yeah um where people get in trouble with concussions especially fighters is they get the concussion and then they keep training yeah and then they get a second concussion and that's that's the one that does the real brain damage right if you get a concussion you know, you need to back off. Yeah. You know, number one. Um, you probably need to improve your nutrition, you know, kind of at that point. Like, uh, I used to have, like, this whole supplement cocktail that I would take. And then uh, third, and this is the, this is a little bit um, stranger of a treatment, but, uh, you know, I found eventually that uh, going to see an osteopath would uh, give me, you know, some of the most benefit from recovering from a concussion. Yeah. So what, what did the osteopath do? So, like, the osteopath, uh, you got to find a good one, first of all, because, uh, I mean, that's outside of, like, mainstream medical, uh, I guess, uh, science as far as that goes. But uh, they, they, I don't know, it's a little bit woo-woo mm-hmm. on, on that end of the spectrum. But uh, if you find a good one, uh, they kind of... Um, when it comes to like the concussion and the head, like if you've basically got bones, you know, in your head and bones in your face yeah. and believe it or not, they can move a yeah. little bit, you know? So these guys, they actually put pressure like on different parts of your skull and, you know, on your face, like say you get punched in the, uh, punched in the cheek or something. And I, I had that happen where I took a right hand and I, you know, I was feeling a little bit concussed, uh, but, uh, 
you know, the osteopath, like, she spent, like, a lot of time just kind of moving my cheekbones around and, like, that kind of thing. What I find is after I go see the osteopath, like, the concussion symptoms will get worse for a couple of days. Yeah. And then it'll start clearing up. Yeah. But, you know, it's about uh, getting all that uh, fluid moving around in your head, you know, like a... Um, so, I mean, if if the fluid's not moving properly, you know, if you got kind of a blockage because, you know, the bones have actually been shifted, you know, it, uh, yeah. you know, you're not it's getting... It's very similar to chiropractic, right? It's there's, very there's similar to chiropractic. In okay. fact, chiropra- chiropractic, I think uh, it's based off of osteopathic, uh, you know, I guess... Methods. Methods. Okay. It's sort of like a modern day form of uh, osteopathy, which uh, I think that was started like several hundred years ago or whatever. It's sort of like on the... I mean, before like modern medical science or whatever, there was just one of those disciplines that kind of fell by the wayside, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, been a little bit underground, but it's, uh, people, they've been, they've been using them for, you know, decades, hundreds of years, like that kind of thing. So we're firm believers in, I don't want to say foo-foo medicine, but one of my good friends is a chiropractor and does ART and, and yep. you were talking about moving the bones around your face and my daughter was, she about, uh, stop me if I've told this story on here before, cause I don't want to be stupid, but, um, uh, I was wrestling with her in the basement and she would come running and jump on me and I'd catch her and shake her up and then, you know, she'd go off again. Well, she you came, shook a baby is uh, what you're saying? Well, oh, maybe man. she was three or four. <laughs> oh, you're an awful person. Awful. <laughs> so anyway, she, she comes running back at me again and I don't see her this time. She goes to leap on me and at the last second I see her and she catches her face on the corner of the table. Mm-hmm. So right away, you know, I pick her up. She cries a little bit. She stops right away. There's a little bit of redness. No big deal. Oh, must have caught most of it. Not a big thing. Wake up the next morning, and she's got like this honking black eye. I'm like, well, black eye's not bad. So, you know, little bruise, little swollen. We let it go. Two weeks later, the swelling all goes down. The black eye's almost gone. But she literally has like a a divot in her face where like (laughs) it had like... It almost looked like where the corner had hit, it had healed inward. So like a, a dimple, but in the wrong part of her cheek. It was more like near her cheekbone. So I'm freaking out. Here's my beautiful little girl, and I've wrecked her face. So you call her different now? I don't call her different now. <laughs> <laughs> we call her lots of stuff, but that's because I shook her as a baby. <laughs> we uh, So I'm like, all right, I'm going to take her down to Children's Hospital, like like it or lump it, I got to admit what happened. We took this bang. We didn't take care of it. So I go down there. They bring in whatever uh, surgeon to look at her and say, oh, we can fix that. And, you know, we'll cut her face open. We'll do that. And, like, she's, like, three years old. I'm, like, I'm not doing that. So I phoned my buddy, the chiropractor, and I said, listen, this is what I did. Oh, by the way, when I was at Children's Hospital, I thought for sure I was going to jail. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. They didn't. Um, They did ask her if I abused her, and she said no, which I was happy with. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she didn't understand at the time. But anyways, I phoned my buddy at the chiropractor. He's like, you need to go see this cranial sacral therapist. Have you heard of these guys? Yeah, the cranial sacral, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the osteopath, they do very similar type of thing as okay. cranial sacral therapy. So that, I, they've sounded yep. the same when you were describing it to me. So I go see this lady and they lay my three-year-old out on a table and she does a bunch of voodoo and feeling the energies and stuff. And at the time I didn't believe in any of that. So I'm like, you're a witch. But yeah. because my buddy James said, it's okay. I'm going to give you a couple more minutes. And then she does her voodoo stuff. She sits her up. She's all, oh, we can solve this really, really quickly. 
I said, okay. So she goes, puts on a pair of rubber gloves and she said, we're just going to adjust the pallets on the top of her mouth and that will release the pressure and then her face will go back to normal. And I'm like, oh, okay. So she reaches in there and she's got these grape flavored rubber gloves for kids and she rubs the top of her mouth and then she shows me the spot and then she pushes her thumb in my hand and says, this is the pressure you need. Well, you do an adjustment. So I reach in there, I do the adjustment. Like, okay. She goes, do that three times a day until it's gone. I'm like, okay. So we get home. Right before Ava goes to bed, I do one more adjustment. She's had a now a total of three adjustments. She woke up the next morning. Problem solved. No gone. way. Completely so gone. Did the divot go away as well? Or? Yeah. Yeah. It completely went out of her face. So it was like a dimple, but like up on her cheekbone. And it completely took it off her face. Like she just went back to the, the round, bulbous, baby, cute face again and uh, solved the problem. Like this witchcraft works. <laughs> whatever it is it you know i i did some research these people will supposedly if you can catch um uh what's it called i think it's cerebral palsy before 11 months they can actually reverse all the side effects it's difficult to diagnose cerebral palsy before 11 months from what i understand but if they get a diagnosis and they see a cranial sacral therapist they don't have the the weakness on the one side they don't have the the inability to grow muscle all that kind of stuff that comes with cerebral palsy that they can they can cure it they can they can get rid of all the symptoms well that's crazy blows my mind so I, yeah when i hear about uh, uh, osteopathy or chiropractic i know it works and some of them are like well i'll cure your cold let me rub you here yeah then i don't believe in that stuff but well you know what i think the buyer needs to beware yeah. you know like uh you've got your own sensibilities you know you have to you have to make a, your own judgment call you yeah. know if it sounds if it sounds like crap it probably <laughs> is right you know um However, if you've tried all the standard of care type of uh, solutions and that's not working for you, you know, you might want to go off the beaten path a little bit and, you know, just get the help that you need, right? I remember um, I was having some serious, you know, this was around uh, 2012, kind of around the uh, Calgary UFC in 2012, but I was having some serious problems with my uh, left hand, like I, I would get punched in the head and then my left hand would go numb, you know, like I was having, you know, it was just like, not only that, but the left arm got very, very weak. Like, you know, I could lift half as much on one side as the other. And it was just, oh yeah, it was terrible. But I, um, you know, of course I'm going to the sports doc, sports doc. He refers me to a surgeon, you know, like a kind of thing. Um, I talked to a couple of chiropractors, uh, you know, they tried helping a little bit, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't working either. So, Saw the surgeon. I mean, he says, "Okay, well, you know what? I can definitely fix that. I've just got to, you know, so I've just got to fuse your, you know, neck vertebrae, right?" Oh, I hate. That. Oh, come on. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it was like, I had, uh, I had. Uh, he would have had to fuse literally three different levels of it, and I was like, "Okay, so if I get the surgery, then what?" Yeah. You know, am I going to be able to turn my head? He's like, well, no, but, uh, you know, (laughs) I'll fix the problem, quote, unquote. You know, it's like, well, what are you fixing? You know, I'd be just an old man and I, you know, I wouldn't be able to do it. shoulder check while you drive. Oh, yeah. I couldn't shoulder check or anything like that. Yeah. And it's funny because um, I did find somebody to fix it, which was uh, yet another chiropractor, you know, and he was doing a, yeah, this was a was a Carson Smith out of a Chinook chiropractic, but okay. he uh, basically, he was doing a, what was called medical acupuncture. So he would put 
electrodes in my neck and down my back. I'd lay on a massage table for about an hour or so, and it would just pulse me, you know, with a, just a current, and it would kind of overstimulate the muscles to the point where they, you know, weren't really firing anymore. Yeah. Then he would put me on the chiropractic table, yeah. and he'd just do his adjustment. And basically the whole methodology was to increase the space between the vertebrae, because, right. you know, it's because the discs themselves were kind of crushed, you know, it's like... 20 years of getting punched in the head, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's they a, wear out. They wear out, yeah, they <laughs> tend to wear out. But, you know, the space between the vertebrae, they are, uh, you know, there's just not very much space. So then it pinches the nerve that goes into the arm and everything. And, uh, yeah. So basically, you just kind of gradually increase the space. So I'd go in a couple times a week, once a week, like that kind of thing, and uh, just just increase the space. And I found over a two, three month period, you know, I was no longer getting the stingers in my hand and yeah. it, uh, it just kind of went away. And I got to say, like, had I just listened to the doctor, you know, oh. listen to the experts, where would you be right now? Where would I be right now? You know yeah. what I mean? I just told the surgeon, I was like, well, you know what, I'm going to try some other stuff and you know, I'll get back to you. You yeah. know, I, like if I ever want to get my neck fused, then yeah, I'll come talk to it's you. It's interesting okay, but. how many stories you hear like that, where it's we need to fuse your back, and then I went and did this. I went and saw stem cells. I went and saw a chiropractor. I went yeah. and started doing yoga, or just yeah, a D- proper D- DDP yoga. That's what it's based right. off of. Is that he? They wanted to fuse his whole back basically from wrestling. But it makes you wonder: Are we like watching like right now? Are we watching the future quackery? They're going to look back and say they're fusing people's backs when there are other options out there. They say that about chiropractors right now, that they're all quacks. And 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 my my entire life was turned around by my chiropractor, 100%. Mm -hmm. That uh, I was at the point where I was taking two to 300 Advil a week. I was doing construction at the time. And um, I'd come out of training at David Lee's club and had mass amount of car accidents. And just my body was falling apart. I was 28 years old and there was nothing left. um, decided on not a fight career, decided on uh, going into construction and making money and finding a family, and, and that all worked out, um, except I was in massive pain every day. Um, found my chiropractor, like three, four appointments. He did a thing called uh, ART, active release yep. therapy, where he digs out all the scar tissues in the muscle, and I'm off the pills. Like, I just, you know, I'll have a backslide. I did something stupid on the weekend and hurt my back. And so I'll go see him and I'll take Advil for a couple of days and bring my swelling down and then I'll be better. But I don't need surgery. I don't need fused. You know, it's funny with the whole quack thing. I mean, like, just like in any field, I mean, there's there's politics in medicine, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you go back, uh, back to the old days. I think it was like the uh, Flexner report from, uh, you know, 1920s or something like that. But, uh, this is where the medical monopoly kind of took over, you know, medicine. And that's where all the so-called quacks, you know, they got pushed off to the side, right? right? So, I mean, I like, uh, I'm actually a big fan of Western medicine, but yeah. I'm, they, they're really good at doing a couple things, okay? They're very good at uh, symptom management using drugs, yeah. okay? And they're really good at surgery. Yeah. But anything, you know that comes down to like preventive care. I mean, as far as they're concerned, it's just basically irrelevant. Yeah. You know, um, so, I mean, when it comes to, uh, I don't know, they just, they just don't, it's irrelevant. So, I mean, they just, uh, they just want to mask symptoms with the drugs that they're using and the drugs. I mean, uh, 
I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing that you should start with all the time. You know, uh, I think they're good for maybe a small period of time, but often what happens is when they put you on a prescription, I mean, the only solution they have from there is when the symptoms start coming back is just to increase... Right. More <laughs> pills. More pills. Stronger pills. Or more pills to cover up the side effects of the other pills, right? right? So, I mean, basically what they're doing is uh, they're creating customers. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I had a long discussion with my parents. So, they're in their 70s, not very healthy. And so, I've taken upon myself to help them with their health. And I said, your goal should always be to come off your medicine like that. I get it. You, you have high blood pressure. We need to manage it until you do the stuff so you don't have high blood pressure. But that's not the way doctors think. They're just, they're, they're very much, I think... And and I and I'm not don't want to bash on doctors because I got friends that are GPs and they're smart people and there's a protocol that they're supposed to follow and that's based off what the population wants, right? If you go, I would say the average Canadian or American go to their doctor and say, "Oh, I've got uh, um, you know acid infl- uh, reflux, I've got high blood pressure, uh, can I have some pills for that?" And the doctor's mm-hmm. gonna go, oh, "Okay." What they should be doing is like, well, what can I do to change my diet and exercise so I don't have these things anymore? But a majority of the population wouldn't follow those. I think that's, that that's exactly the problem there is it's a chicken or egg scenario. Like yeah. what happened first? Were the doctors allowing for the magic pill solution or were people asking for the magic pill solution? Because we live in a society where, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of options out there and they're probably better options, but it involves work. Right. Oh, and who wants to work? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it's, it involves a certain mentality too to to question what's told. Like recently this summer, I uh, I was trying to increase my side motiv- uh, flexibility in my hips, and ended up pulling both of my hamstrings because <laughs> when you're 40, uh, pushing does not get you gains; it gets you injuries. Um, but anyways, wrecked my back and it didn't heal. It was about six weeks in, and I, I went to the doctor. I'm like, I can't get past like 80 percent healing, and he goes, oh, Okay, well here's the situation: we're going to get you on pain medication. We're going to get you in rehab for the next two years. Uh, you got to realize that you can't live with the same lifestyle you had. And pretty much like, go sit on the couch, here's some drugs, just go away. He's like, how does that sound? I'm like, sounds stupid. You're going to give me some muscle relaxants for tonight, and I'm going back to kickboxing tomorrow. Yeah. And he just looked at me like, <laughs> what? And uh, it turned out it was actually it was a low-carb diet. I wasn't feeling enough uh, uh, nutrients to heal the injury because I stopped doing low carb and the next week I was fine. Sorry, <laughs> so you were doing the low carb diet? I was doing keto and I got an injury that I probably wouldn't have gotten and then it didn't heal on top of it. And mm-hmm. uh, research I've been doing li- lately has kind of said that maybe that's not the best idea to be doing on anything that involves uh, massive surges of uh, energy like a kickboxing would. Yeah, you know, um, I think the low carb diet like keto is maybe it's a good zone to visit once yeah. in a while, but I don't think you should probably live there long term. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's, uh, from my research, it's a great way to lose fat as long as you're sedentary. Um, anything that requires uh, quick bursts of energy, you need to have carbohydrates to power that because your body just will not pull fat for that type of energy. And then healing needs the carbohydrates also for the, the reaction. I can't remember if it was Dom D'Agostino Dom that was just, yeah. was just talking about that where people, uh, professional athletes that do well on a keto diet don't do well and they get injured. And so they have to come off of keto to heal properly. Otherwise, they, they stretch it out by, it's like 30 or 40 or 50. It was a high number of how much longer it took to heal when you're on a strict I've keto absolutely diet. absolutely noticed that. Yeah. yeah. It was funny with Dom D'Agostino you know, he's, he's been on a keto diet for about 12 years now. Yeah. You know, he's just hasn't, hasn't come off it. Right. Um, 
But he yeah. understands the the, oh, yeah. the the means of it. So like we have a friend with epilepsy and she went on a keto diet and she dropped like 100 pounds and she's almost off her uh, uh, epileptic medicine. She's not having seizures very often anymore. And it was 100% her diet that got her to this really, really good place. So it works. My wife's a holistic nutritionist and she um, has clients that are on a keto diet and yep. they just watch and see how the body's going. And if it's performing well and, you know, you're everything thing is happening the way it's supposed to be happening well then good you're the person that can be on keto diet well you know what i think the keto diet is a you know i i've been actually doing a lot of uh you know i watch a lot of podcasts myself it, ironically this is the first one i've ever been on but really uh, oh, yeah. oh yeah i would have thought you've been snapped up in calgary before this no no nobody wants me but <laughs> um yeah i mean like with a with like fasting Fasting and a keto diet are basically the same thing because when you stop eating for a period of time, your body has to switch over to fats. So you uh, go into ketosis. Yeah, you go into ketosis by default by not eating for Actually, a while. Fasting right? is a common way to jumpstart ketosis. You'll just fast for uh, 24 hours and then go to keto, and yep. you're already you've pretty much jumpstarted oh, for wow. like a week or two yeah, of yeah. keto. Yeah. I've also heard people doing the reverse, where they'll do the keto diet before they go into long block fasting. Mm. So say they're mm. doing a seven day fast, well they'll switch to I a keto. That would make it easier. Yeah. yeah, it's just a bit of an easier transition because now your body's already used to burning fat for fuel. You right. know, and then you do the fast, do the fast, and uh, not you know, quite so cold you turkey. Must drop weight like crazy if you do the the keto first, then go into the block fasting because your body's in that fat burning mode. Well, you know, you know what I like about that whole keto thing too is, uh, you know, you're adding, you're giving yourselves a metabolic uh, flexibility. You know, because uh, I, I think in our modern day and age, you know. Uh, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm kind of basing my opinions off of uh, like Jason Fung. You know, he wrote a book, he wrote a few good books or whatever, uh, The Diabetes Code and, uh, yeah. you know, The uh, Ultimate Guide to Fasting or whatever, right? But, I mean, he's, uh, he's kind of saying that, uh, you know, you go back through like evolutionary history, it's not normal to be eating all the time. You know what 100%. I mean? We would go through long periods of feast, feast and famine, and famine yeah. right? So. Yeah. Our bodies are essentially geared to going through these famine periods. And what, what happens is you come out of that famine period and you come out with a new body, basically. I mean, your body has to get rid of all the uh, defective proteins and everything. It'll shuttle that off to the liver, you know, uh, go through a process called gluconeogenesis, yeah. where, you know, it'll create blood sugar from, you know, defective proteins and stuff. <laughs> it'll leave all the proteins that it needs you know, to uh, maintain life and, uh, you know, just basic muscle mass and, uh, you know, get rid of everything else. So when you come out of a fast, you know, uh, like your body will rebuild from there, right? So, uh, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist or anything, but it's just, uh, it's interesting. It makes sense, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, like this day and age, you know, we eat all the time. You know, we eat constantly. So what happens is uh, our blood sugar is essentially never dropping, yeah. You know, we're never going into ketosis, you know, and, uh, you know, basically we become kind of like sugar addicts. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, and, you know, I don't think it's very good for you either. It's just, uh, 
you know, I think you need to have those uh, periods of uh, feast and famine because, well, this is how our body evolved over millions of years. You when know, I say so sugar, the reason it's such an addictive uh, material is it doesn't occur naturally a whole lot. It's it's really rare, but we still need it, and that's why we crave it so much. Is when you do find it, your body's saying, we need this, get as much of it in here as possible, but it's only been the past, what, maybe 100, 200 years that it's been easily accessible? Yeah, you're, you're talking about re- like 80, 100 yeah, years tops. Yeah, and you're talking like refined sugar, right? On top so, yeah. of that, yeah. 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 I think it was actually, they, they, they narrowed it down to about the 50s when they started making cereals for kids. So it used to just be like oatmeal, like grandma used to make, right? Like whole grain oatmeal, and they boiled it and put some fruit in it, and that's what you got. Maybe you got fruit or a little bit of brown sugar. But then, uh, I can't remember if it was Kellogg's or one of those big companies started producing like all the, the Cheerios and the Rice Krispies and stuff like that. And that was kind of the basis of it. And they would load it up with sugar, get everyone addicted. And then, you know, from there you went into TV dinners. Well, if we sprinkle a little bit of sugar on all the TV dinners, are going to be, people are going to want them more, right? That's easy. Stick them in your oven. You feed four people. Well, There's no prep, no mess. Right now. Like it's amazing. You look at a McDonald's hamburger you look at the nutritional values, it has as much sugar as a chocolate bar. <laughs> it's crazy, You wouldn't right? think that though, right? No. That's why I love McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I think the the big um, the big things with nutrition is that you want to actually plan on putting the right amount of nutrition in your body. So a lot of people think about satiation, right? The getting the good feeling when they're eating, and you can get that from nutritious foods, but it's so much easier and quicker to get it from something you threw in the microwave or in the oven. There was no prep work, no nothing like that. I think the problem is that so many people are so gen- uh, sorry, so uh, genetically diverse. And we don't really appreciate that everyone's different. And we look to be what's successful for other people, though it's being successful for us. And right. then you see failure that really is not factored into what you're trying to accomplish. Um, recently, a, a friend of mine was uh, found a, a great article on uh, the three different workout types. And reading it, I was mm. like, oh, I totally get this now. Because I've, I've been, you know, I've been, I've been kickboxing and boxing for a while now. I've never really gotten into the mental state that a lot of people I find around me are. And then it explained like, well, some people are just really low on dopamine and you become an addict for dopamine of any way, whether that's new experiences, whether that's thrills or whether that's just food in general. And as a result, you're constantly just striving to get more dopamine, to get that, that positive sensation in your brain. Whereas some people are, they're, um, they're very detail orientated and they get the rewards by mastery. And those are those guys that, you know, you, you watch them lift weights and they cannot get past that single movement because they haven't perfect, perfected it. Or guys where you're teaching a pad session and you can't get past the jab because they know that they're not doing it perfect yet. And you're like, dude, everyone's like, we're on to like, you know, the one, two, three, and you're still on the one. Uh, what's going on here? But you start to realize that people function differently and their motivations are different. Um, with keto, for sure, I definitely found that too. Like I can think of like probably... Actually, no, everyone I've ever encountered that does keto has reacted differently in some way. Like for me, I lost 80 pounds in the first uh, couple months I did it. That's good. And I've gotten nothing since then. Oh, yeah. Hit a wall and it does nothing. Like it's great because it's hard to be keto at McDonald's. So if I'm keto, I know I'm eating better, but I'm not actually getting much benefits. And now that I know that I'm getting more injuries and lower performance, it's like, well... Got to start looking at other options, I think, right? Yeah, everything takes balance, right? Right, so, but I can't yeah. give that advice to anybody else. Because no. some people it works great. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I think my wife says that the, the danger of the keto diet is that it's difficult on your liver. I can't remember the reason why. And so if you're on it for a long period of time, your liver is the, I think it's got like 150 um, jobs that it does in your body. So when you tax the liver, all of a sudden it stops wanting you to lose weight. It stops producing hormones. It stops all the, the major tasks that it's supposed to do. So it can focus just on the basic tasks that it has to do. Mm. So if you're not loading your body up with good nutrition and feeding your liver and taking care of your liver then none of those other jobs so it'll, it'll affect your brain it'll affect your fat loss it'll affect everything so their model that they run after is high nutrition they don't care about calories they don't care about carbs they just want every meal to have a high level because you can't get fat eating vegetables right you just can't when your body gets to that certain level of nutrition your body goes yeah i'm done it's mm. the ghrelin and lectin um, hormones, right? The ghrelin says go yep. eat, and the lectin says you're all done. And when you load yourself up with nutrition, then lectin fires off, goes you're done. You don't need to do anything else. And so you don't eat nearly as much food because you don't need it. But when you eat stuff low in nutrition, your lectin's like, come on, we're almost there, almost there, a little bit more, a little bit. Oh, all right, now you got it. But you're just bloated with McDonald's hamburger or you know whatever you happen to be eating because it's so low in nutrition, your body just can't your body will still want more non-stop so that's what she's got me on i went down what was it 20 pounds in three months uh not at my goal weight yet but getting there and that was like a kind of high high vegetable content so the my basic breakdown is all my carbohydrates in the morning so berries cereals breads and and i don't have a whole bunch of cereals and breads and if i do they're like ancient grain or natural grains um cereals um my breads are ancient grain or sprouted breads and i might have two or three pieces of bread all week long i might have one or two bowls of cereal. I have lots of fruit in the morning, like a cup almost every morning with whatever I'm eating. And then my lunch is two to three cups of vegetables and uh, six to eight ounces of protein. And then I get a little bit of nuts in there as well. I have an ounce of cashews. And um, she's got me on this selenium thing. So it's two Brazil nuts every day. I, yep. They taste like dirt, but whatever. They're good for you. <laughs> they, they're uh, they're not my favorite nut. I get people love them. Well, you know, selenium is one of those uh, micronutrients that most people are deficient in. A hundred percent. So... You know, like- uh, we do that, and then my nighttime is again six to eight ounces of protein and as many vegetables as I want. So, and I switch it up. My sometimes my vegetables I get it in soup. I'll just make massive soups loaded with vegetables and good bone broth and homemade bone broth. I haven't been sick. Everyone at work is sick. My kids have come home sick. I'm eating bone broth, and I'm totally fine. Well, you don't feed your kids the way you feed yourself? It's more difficult. to. Well, we like shaking our babies, so they don't <laughs> listen quite as well. But uh, I had this fight with my daughter, and, and it's tough to convince a teenager that sugar is not good because they don't feel bad when they eat sugar. They don't get fat when they eat sugar. They're, you know, their brain doesn't go into fog when they eat sugar because they're really good at adapting. And when you're 30 and you go eat the same as a... 14-year-old, you're not so good at adapting anymore. You get fat, you get lazy, you get injured, you get all these things going on. So you try to tell the kids, like, I get it, it tastes good, and, you know, you're not, you're not the, you're not out of shape. Like you're not, uh, you look the way you want to look. And so they're like, what's the big deal if I eat a bag of cookies and I'm thinking, I'm like, I get it. 
<laughs> you'll we just try to model as best as we can but you know she showed up tonight with a slurpee and a bag of chips and a bag of uh gummy worms or you know, whatever what's ironic it was. about that is uh everyone knows the keto diet is used for uh epilepsy in children and it's a really great cure for that and they yeah. say well it works great with kids we don't know about adults but the actual truth behind that is it works great with adults too it was just a hundred years ago when this was determined they were like well parents will force their kids to eat it for health <laughs> We can't expect any adult, though, to self-regulate a non-carb diet. And that's why yeah. they just, they, no one that they were, well, very few people they were able to test with this diet that were adults were willing to actually put it, do this to themselves. Wow. And our friend we were just talking about, she was saying she goes to an epilepsy clinic. And she's at, I think, three years now of keto nonstop. And she's yeah. one of the only people, if not the, the longest lasting person that's done a keto diet. We're talking to people that are like seizures or chocolate bars. Let's, yeah, I think we'll stick think with chocolate rest bars. Seizure. Yeah. And I've seen I've seen it in her where she's like she's literally sitting there looking at pizza like oh, if I eat this she, pizza it's just one seizure. She did it with me. We were out a couple of weeks ago and she's like, "You want to do some shots?" So I'm like, "Seriously? You're probably going to go home and have a seizure." <laughs> and so, but like she does it once a year maybe. Yeah. And so that's a calculated risk. Yeah, it was, it's a hundred percent what it yeah. was. So she got a beer and a couple of shots and we had a good time and seizure, seizure, yeah, totally. <laughs> That would have been too funny if we had done that little sit around her and chance. No, it's like when you look at that girl. Oh, she's just so beautiful at the pool table there. Those sore, are those sores on her mouth? Oh, she's so pretty. <laughs> oh, that's nasty. Oh, um, I wanted to bring it up earlier. You were talking about the your next week. Did you hear about the Pat Militage story? Uh, no. What what happened with him? So he obviously MMA fighter, wrestling for years. He had spent his whole career with neck injuries and not wanting to go see a doctor. And uh, when he retired and became coaching, the neck pain was really, really bad. And so he went in, they did some x-rays. He had three vertebrae in his upper neck, all fused on their own. Awful. (laughs) They they literally grew together. So no um, uh, discs in between them. And uh, he just sucked it up through the whole career. You know, that's a funny thing that you mentioned that because that's exactly what my chiropractor, the one that fixed my neck, said happens is, you know, like you want those vertebrae to be moving, you know what I mean? Because otherwise, like, otherwise, uh, when the muscle, like say you uh, get an injury, you know, the muscles will tighten up, Yeah, you know what I mean? And they won't release type of thing. And if those bones stay in one place for long enough, I mean, naturally, they just try to fuse to protect themselves. Exactly. So that's where the chiropractic adjustment comes in, is it just, it gets them moving again. They're moving across each other. And that's that's kind of like natural. Like They should be moving. And right. Muscles go into atrophy. Yep. Uh, one of the uh, therapists that I go to, he does this test where um, you lay on the ground. I can't remember exactly how the tests go, but basically what they try to do is take you back to when you were a baby and learning how to fire muscles. So if you were going to roll over, how would a baby learn to roll over? What muscles actually fire in what order? And so, so many adults will... Um, uh, uh, when they get an injury, their body will protect it and they don't do anything to get that firing again. So when I was a teenager, I was doing Greco-Roman wrestling. I suplexed the guy and I broke my sternum. So he shook in the middle of the air and he basically speared me in the chest and it, and it broke my um, uh, breastbone. So tons of pain, couldn't breathe, whatever. Um, 
went to my regular doctor and they're like, oh, this will heal. It'll suck for a little while. And sure enough, it sucked for a little while and it healed. And now I'm back to it. But I couldn't get my pecs to grow at all. So I was, this therapist was telling me like, well, we have to get Tito's muscles to refire because they stopped because mm-hmm. of that pain that you had. And so you they won't grow because that in, in their mind, I guess, they don't want to. Like they're set. We're not going to do this. So I've learned to use my shoulders and my back and everything without using my chest. So I'm learning how to refire my chest now so I can actually not look like a six-year-old boy anymore. Did you use a muscle stim to get that going? Because oftentimes that's what it takes is like you get muscle stim on there. It sends an electrical impulse in there and it'll bring those muscles back online by force. Exactly. You know I mean? so. He he says we can go into that, and I've had muscle stim for other areas before where they put the um, uh, acupuncture needles in, yep. and then they hook the muscle stim up, and they do it that way. And it's worked for you know muscles that we couldn't get out of spasm. and uh, Which is the same as what I was doing with the medical acupuncture. So exactly. yeah, it's right along the same lines. They know? totally work. And what he told me was like, he goes, I don't care if you can only do one push-up. But make sure that muscle fires. If you go to do the second one and you can't get it to fire, then don't do it. Go wait a couple hours or the next day and do it again. And we can do this naturally and retrain it instead of forcing it to fire again. So this is what he'll do with his, with all of his professional athletes is like he'll have the bobsled team come in and, you know, to shave a second off their time, he'll check every single muscle that it's firing in order. And then he'll get it to re-fire if someone's not firing. And all of a sudden they're running a second faster or a tenth of a second faster just because of these little things that, you know, you're two and you fell down the stairs and you banged your thigh really hard. So that one part of the the quad isn't firing the way the rest of them are. So let's retrain it and then it starts firing and then you're running faster and you're running longer, whatever you happen to be doing. That's very important in sport too um, is – being able to visualize, you know, the muscles that you're using and, yeah. uh, you know, um, when I was competing, I had a really good strength coach, uh, named Matt Jordan, but, uh, I remember with my strength training sessions, you know, he would often tell me, you know, uh, I need you to feel yourself, you know, uh, you know, firing those muscles, you yeah. know, like as, as you're going kind of thing. You know, and it makes a big difference, actually, because that actually carries over to martial arts as well. Like, you got to... Visualize the fight. Visualize the movement. Visualize it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're creating a pattern or whatever, like from brain to, you know, body kind of thing. And, uh, you know, make sure that you're doing everything correctly that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, a little thing like, I don't know, you could be lifting weights and stuff, but if you're not actively trying to fire the right muscles i mean you yeah. know you're not really going to get as much out of it as you you could be that's an interesting agree. point i've actually been debating that a lot with a lot of friends that train um i'm at the point now where i'm realizing that a lot of bad habits occur over time especially when you just, i do rack so it's not like it really matters how well i do it but trying to focus a lot more on technique over like doing a hundred or something just do one perfect um but the problem i find is that you get in your head it's more important to work hard than to work right. Um, it's amazing. Like I've, I've recently started lifting weights with a partner and realizing that I do most of my weight lifts wrong and I'm, I'm activating the wrong muscles. And he'll be like, dude, we're doing a back, we were doing back lifts right now. Like your back should be activated. I can see it's not. And you're like, you know, you're totally right. It's not. And I wouldn't have noticed that if you hadn't said anything. Cause I'm trying to do the, the, the exercise, the lift. I'm not actually focusing on what I should be doing. 
See, that's why I lift weights alone, so I don't get criticized. <laughs> <laughs> Solves that Solves problem. Yeah. That problem. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, and that's, uh, I believe, it, uh, I was going to ask you that question too. So in your career, when you were training, how much of your training relo- relied around, uh, revolved around um, um, meditating, uh, visualizing, that kind of stuff? And lots of guys nowadays do it, but it seemed like, you know, I mean, you've only been out for three years, but it wasn't that common that long ago. Well, I, um, like actively meditating, I wouldn't say I was a big into that, although I am a big believer in it. You know, um, when I was training, you know, like those would kind of be my meditation sessions, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going through the motions in my head, you know, before I'm, if you're going to pull off a move, you kind of have to, uh, have to have an idea of what you're trying to accomplish. Exactly. You know, so, I mean, you have to see it first, you know, to be able to pull it off. And uh, I think, um, I think a lot of times people like when they're training too, they're not, they're not really, uh, you know, going, going through those motions in their head. They're kind of doing what they've always been doing and you kind of get locked into a pattern and everything. So a lot of um, the mentality, just getting through it too, I think with a lot of people. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I, talking about meditation, though, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, when I was training, I, I was doing a lot of yoga kind of stuff. So, like, especially, you know, coming up to a fight, like, uh, I would kind of use that as sort of my meditation time. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I'd be going through poses and everything, like... Uh, <laughs> like actual a, yoga class? or just Actual yoga classes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'd do hot yoga, and that, that's how I was cutting my weight and stuff. So, that would be sort of That'll my... That'll do it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I would. <laughs> and you know what was nice about that, too? Uh, a lot of times people go into a hot sauna, just sit there and yeah. let the heat do it. But, you know, I find that if you're doing the, you know, you're doing all this, all the, you know, the you're doing the movements and, and everything, it actually gets rid of more water. Yeah. You know, and it's a little bit healthier anyways. Like, uh, you're not just trying to overheat yourself. You're, yeah. you know, you're just going through stuff and uh, you're getting some flexibility or... Uh, I'm recently getting back into yoga. I've only done hot yoga twice, and it was I physically this challenge for sure, but it was way more mental because there's nothing keeping you in that room other than you. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to make that mental decision. Like I'm not going to get beat out by that 50 year old lady in front of me that's well, kicking yeah, you, my ass. You don't want to look like a bitch. <laughs> yeah, that's 100 what it is. I was going to say like ego's not keeping you there because that's why I do. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm not leaving any class <laughs> until we're done. I don't care. That's, I, that's keeping me there. <laughs> the argument in my head was was so ridiculous like i'm like why are you here like you don't need to be just just get up and go and then you watch the lady in front of you do some like handstand pose and she's 80 years old and you're like well for crying out loud like stop being a baby and just suck <laughs> yeah. it up and let's get this done and then before you know it, the 90 minutes is done oh, and yeah. you're 10 pounds lighter oh. you're lightheaded and you want to vomit but you get through it and then it gets easier and easier i love the feeling after actually oh. it's just uh it's so good it's like a, a 90 minutes to feel like you've, you've um, summited Mount Everest. Well, and you know, it's kind of like, um, I, I found when I'm lifting weights, doing martial arts, uh, you know, that's very, you know, impact kind of oriented. Whereas when I was doing yoga classes, it was kind of expansion, yeah. you know, like you're, you know, you're not crunching your body, you're actually letting it release, yeah. you know, a little bit. And I think especially as you get older, and I mean... Like as an older athlete, that becomes more and more important. You yeah. know what I mean? You're not you're not trying to crush it every workout. You're you know you got to balance it out, and yeah. uh, you got to look for the ways to uh, 
you know, decompress as well as uh, as well as it, it compress. It's an interesting point you make there um, about getting older and trying to do a combat sport, which just you know really isn't probably the best idea. What are your suggestions for that? For I've I've really been struggling with this, right? Like it's hard for your ego to go in there and be outdone by a twenty year old, even though by all rights they should be. Oh yeah, um, they, they they got the advantage there. <laughs> they for sure. do, and in your mind, you're like, "Well, I, I hurt my back uh, another time this year because me and a 20 year old were doing a sit up contest, and there's no way I was going to let him beat me." And he's like, easily <laughs> in twice as good shape as me and half my age. And, and like, he totally beat you, eh? <laughs> no, he didn't. Oh, but no, I, no, left with, <laughs> I left with I left with a back injury. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <'Cause> essentially, <laughs> the 20 year old won. I'd say, not, oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 yeah, he he won the war, <laughs> not the battle. But he <laughs> walked out without a back oh. injury. But how would how would you suggest? Uh, dealing with that sort of thing well you know what i mean like i've been a young athlete yep. you know I, I mean i started martial arts when i was 15 you know uh and i quit when i was 35 you're those guys that we so. hate who were like flexible as young kids and we're like God damn it we're never going to be that <laughs> I, way <laughs> you know what uh, there's something to be said by starting young and i mean yeah. 15 by today's standards i think would be actually rather old i mean especially when you compare some of the oh. wrestlers that you know they started when they were six yeah. years old or whatever right but I think um hendrix was four johnny hendrix yep. yeah 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 it's, it's very hard to uh get that base you know as an older person right but uh i mean starting as a young athlete uh the way you train is much different than the way you train as an old athlete i mean the young guys, I mean, they can beat themselves up, you know, 24 hours a day kind of thing. Uh, like, as an older athlete, you're looking for efficiencies. You're not, mm. you know, as a young fighter as well, I mean, you can take a lot more fights back to back. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and again, like, that, that for that phase of your uh, career, I mean, you're just gaining experience, you know. And, uh, yeah, you, you'll, you'll, t- you'll do all sorts of stuff that uh, you can't really do as an older oh, athlete sure, yeah. as an older athlete you've got to work smarter not harder um uh like how do you get the result without beating yourself up so much you know yeah. and like diminishing returns right diminishing yeah. returns and i mean usually as an older athlete you don't need to beat yourself up because you already got the experience so you, right. you know how to be efficient yeah. now if you're just starting as an old person getting into it you don't have the experience to grow uh, to, to draw from <laughs> yeah. and you, you don't have the <laughs> the age to yeah do. you don't have the age to compensate either yeah. so again you need to you need to work you know you need to work within your limitations and just kind of increase it you know just in little increments yeah. and just Remember that you have to do it over a long period of time, right? So a lot of times, again, people, they get with this ego thing. They're trying to get too much too fast. You know, you got to realize that you got to do it just slowly, but over a long period of time and just look for those little 1% improvements over a long period of time. And I promise you, you will get... You will get good if you hang in there long enough. I mean, mastery is ten thousand hours, right? So more of a big picture sort of idea absolutely. than the actual that in the moment competition with everyone next to you. Sort of that's a tough one to get past, though. I think. <laughs> well, the ego the, thing is for sure. Oh, my well, ego is such a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and again, uh, I mean, this sounds a little bit cliche, but you know, you need to more compete with yourself rather than you know the others yeah. around you. Are you better than you were, you know, yesterday? You yeah. Know? Not are you better than this guy that's right beside you? You don't you don't know who he is. You don't yeah, know what his experience. Yeah. And I've always are. said it's about being better than last week, right? Absolutely, and you know you got to be happy with those little little gains yeah. that you're making, and you know you got to celebrate them as you as you're going. Okay, well, I think you know, the problem with getting older though is you find yourself going back a lot. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and, that's like every inevitable. injury sets you back, and you're just constantly. I remember like uh, coming back. I took about a year off of kickboxing, and my first coming back, my first week was horrible. And I was like, "Cool, okay, I know in a month my cardio is gonna be better, so I've got that goal to look forward to." And then it's like, "Okay, I gotta remember all of my combos. I gotta remember my footwork. I gotta remember to put everything together." And then you get back on back on back on uh, par with yourself, and you kind of you lose those goals all of a sudden, and then that's when you start competing with everyone around you, mm. which just isn't a realistic way to look at it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. But I think you get a valid point. Maybe set those goals, set those long term goals that you're working for. Don't don't fall into the trap of competing with people around you when yeah you're not on the same playing field as everyone else. Oh, you you're definitely not. I mean, I mean, if you're doing martial arts. Uh I, I hope you're doing it because, you know, you enjoy it, first of all. So, I mean, if you're doing it in a way that it's not enjoyable anymore, you know, that's not a long-term recipe, period. Yeah. So, I mean, you're showing up to the gym because you enjoy being there. You enjoy, you know, making some progress. And, you know, again, just, I wouldn't I wouldn't even get too, too long-term. I mean, just, you know, are you better than yesterday? Yeah. You know? Are you better than last week? You know, and just enjoy those. Enjoy the process. Don't mm-hmm. don't worry about the goal as much as the process, right? Uh, yeah. You know, the journey really is. You know, the journey is the end goal. It's not the goal itself. Yeah. We had a bit of a not an argument, a debate, I guess, the other day. We fight. were talking Let's call about it a fight. okay. We fought over this. <laughs> we uh, we were talking about different styles of gyms that we've been to. Where you know you go to one martial arts gym and they're very focused on fitness and cardio, and then very little on um, technique and, and stuff like that, or that's how it feels. You go to other ones and like, there's no cardio, no fitness, but like they're a hundred percent technique. And of course you get everything in between. You've been with Brian Bird at Champions Creed for, I think your whole career or maybe all your martial arts. I, uh, I started my career at Mike Miles, uh, oh, uh kickboxer. Kick, kickboxing, right. you know, um, I got with Brian, you know, kind of as my kickboxing career was, I guess, winding down. I mean, I wasn't old at that point. I think it was a uh, 22 or 23 at that point but i really 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 wanted to try this mma thing you know i I just loved how dynamic it was uh you know like yeah you had to like you know mix grappling components with like striking components and i mean basically you know you just had to do it all but i mean i yeah i've been with brian for a long long time um i've also you know i also took some training trips as well like uh you know I, i went uh I went out to TriStar. I did a little bit of training out there. I went down to Extreme Couture. You know, mm-hmm. most of my training has been here in Calgary. But I got to say that uh, there's a lot of benefit to, you know, moving into different gym environments as well. Because, you know, like every gym has got kind of strengths and weaknesses. So, I mean, when you go into a different environment, right, you get to pull some of those benefits out, 100%. right? You know, you still got your coaches and everything. Like, uh, you know, and I think it's very important to be loyal to your coaches and stuff like that. But, you know, you can't you can't box yourself in too much either. You know, right. like, you, you know, like a, there's a lot of value, you know, in the way other people are doing things too. So you have to keep your eyes really open and be open to, you know, like learning, learning new tricks and learning new trades, right? So you see that right now with uh, David Lee and Kelowna and Frost Sahabi, where yep. lots of uh, or a couple of David guys are going over to TriStar and they're working together. So you see David and Frost in the corner with them in the UFC. Yep. Rory McDonald was one of them. There was someone else from the club, Shane Shaolin, I think. Yep. Um, he was going to both gyms, but a lot of martial arts really frown on that. Like the I know Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, if you're coming from a 
another club, they're like, you have to really work your way into that new club and prove that you're part of the family and, and all that kind of stuff. And Brian obviously doesn't seem like that, that type of guy where he seems very open to, you know, you say yeah. he did the trips and stuff like that. Um, he works with Mike Miles lots with his fighters. I think Hakeem is doing three different clubs right yep. now yep. Um, and doing very well. Uh, I think the those guys that don't want you to step outside, there's probably some insecurity or ego in that, um, in their mind that's not allowing that to happen. I, I understand that uh, point of view because, I mean, here it is. Like, when you're running a gym and you're bringing a fighter up, like, I mean, say, say you're just taking a guy from scratch, you know? Like, you're teaching him all the basics and everything. Like, you're... Um, Taking him through your system, I guess, of like a you know bringing him from a you know a rookie to a fighter. I mean, you're going to invest a lot of time into that guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, I mean, obviously, there's going to be an attachment. You know, there's going to be know. a financial, there's exactly. a brotherhood attachment. There's a the business side. Exactly. I mean, I think as a coach, you want to. Um, you want to do what's best for your athlete, though, as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you need to give him. You, you need to give him everything that you got and everything. But if there's something that's missing in the athlete, yeah. You know, you you need to be unselfish and you know make sure that he's getting what he needs. Yeah. Like I found that too, just with my own coaching. Like a, I, I've I've coached. You know, I've coached for many many years, and I found that uh, um, after you've been with a uh, a fighter, um, an athlete, uh, or just a regular student after a while, I mean, you almost get locked into a pattern with them. Yeah. So, I mean, he knows what is expected of you and you know what is expected of him kind of thing. And you guys almost, you get locked into a pattern to where, you know, at a certain point it's good to break it up. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, when he goes off with a different coach, you know, he, he, you know, his whole paradigm gets changed you know what i mean he's got a new pattern to adapt to and that ultimately is better for the athlete yeah now it doesn't mean that you can't offer value to him in fact uh, i found that uh, after training with different coaches um when i come back you know to that original coach the you know um you know because i've been sh- shaken up a little bit like uh um, learn something new. I've learned something new. I've got a few more tools or whatever. When I come back to that original coach, you know, he's actually got more to offer me, you know, after I've, you know, shifted my paradigm a little bit. Right. So yeah. like it, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be a, uh, you know, either or type of thing. You can have both, you know, and, uh, I mean the coach, you know, he's got to care enough about you, you know, and your success to, you know, kind of let go of you at a certain point and, yeah. you know, keep the door open so that, you know, you can come back, right? Uh, you'll notice that too, even with, uh, like, Rory, uh, you know, he was with David Lee for a long time. Yeah. You know, he went, you know, to TriStar for, you know, a while and, yeah. you know, he's kind of circled back and now he's back with David. And, you know, I'm in Kelowna now. That's and right. And, you know regularly. what? I think that, uh, you know, like, uh, that was, that was a good thing to do too. You know, I know that it was David that actually got, Rory in the door at uh, TriStar 2 and you know oh like, he did oh, that's oh awesome. yeah 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 I, I trained with David when I lived in Kelowna yeah. not for a long time but a couple of years and he's a great guy it's actually part of the this question was that uh, when I trained uh, under him I came to Calgary 
And I couldn't find a place to train. I was so set in my head that David just had the right way to do it that I literally stopped training martial arts. Well, you know what? And I, I don't even blame you for thinking that because David is a great, great coach. He's fantastic. You know, and he's a fantastic coach. And I mean, the results kind of speak for themselves, right? I was six months in jiu-jitsu with him and we went to a fireball tournament fireball tournament and uh, it was a no-gi tournament and i was beating guys that had four or five years experience like it was it was crazy how fast david moved people up it was shocking to me that he didn't have more people in the ufc and it was probably more lacking the right students than it was david's coaching well he's in Kelowna. it's not a not a a small bowl not a big pool yeah Yeah, exactly how much do you think that was of just his style of teaching versus him speaking the right language to you it very well could be but i mean i know the people that are with david stay with david you know rory had to find something outside of what he knew and david i think realized that and they partnered with tristar and and i know of the short time that I know David, he was really well studied and then he was definitely dedicated to what he did. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, you got there in the morning, whoever he was saying hi to, he got you pumped about being in the gym. And, you know, I remember him driving me till I throw up and then he, he literally congra- congratulated me. It's like, all right, way to go. Now you've hit your limits. So how do we get past those limits? And he stands you back up, you wipe the vomit up and you get back in the ring yeah. and start going again. And, and I know that's not great training practices now, but back then he literally made me feel like I could take on the world. Like yep. he, he, he was a great coach that. That way and then you come to calgary and i didn't really know anybody and um i uh, went and saw max Marin, who again is a good coach uh, but i just didn't jive with him i went to mike miles i didn't jive with him and mm-hmm. so a big part of it's got to be me but a, a large part of it was how good David are you was. training right now then or no i got a few injuries i i was doing a teaching self-defense here for a couple of years um, like how to stop gun attacks and knife attacks no i didn't oh, do that okay. it was basic boxing wrestling jiu-jitsu yeah, skills yeah. just the the basics and we had this Let's little be honest, it ran. was like a super hard hit <laughs> MMA club. Yeah. <laughs> it turned into that towards the yeah, end. Yeah, it was a it was a self defense club because it was in a church, and I don't think they would have really been okay like with calling it MMA. The hell out it of was each yeah, other. but it was like hard jujitsu and really hard hitting kickboxing. kickboxing. Yeah, <laughs> we had a cop that came in there. He was uh, two hundred ninety pounds, ex pro boxer. He has hands like a middleweight, like fast but he hit like a 290 pounder and we would spar with him and he was just crushing people oh boy there it was and but it was fun like no one no one got massively injured a buddy of mine um uh, popped a rib and you know very very and minimal those, stuff. those are mostly accidents not like yeah. sparring injuries though like yeah people exactly. falling or something weird so i haven't been at it in a while and i'm debating now and we of course budget our money very differently now so you know like do I do stuff with the family or do I go train? Like do martial arts, you know, like they're eh. both important, you know, they are the and time s- with your family. You can't get that back. And right know? now my daughter's excited about weight training and, and getting ready for track season. So I'm at the gym with her. We're sprinting, we're doing leg workouts and, 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 uh, track workouts more. So, which for me, it doesn't really matter. I'm 45 years old. Just do what I ever have to do to, uh, um, stay in shape. It doesn't matter if I'm doing sprinting workouts or if I'm doing martial arts, it's, I just need to keep moving. So, oh, yeah. um, I would love to get back 
back. I'd love to come down to Champions You Creed. should come down to Champions. Actually, you know, we got a really good program there. I mean, there's something in there for everybody. I yeah. mean, they got wrestling, kickboxing, you know, uh, jiu-jitsu, obviously. Uh, I'm there. You can hang out with me. Yeah, yeah I know. Exactly. I, th- he keeps bugging me, and the guys keep bugging me to start up our uh, Summit Self-Defense again, just so we had a place to spar and train together and... It, uh, it it's fun. I love martial arts. I really do. But it's finding time, and uh, it's actually funny talking about having different people coming in and different experiences. It's actually, where uh, my experience with uh, with you, Nick, came from was you came in and uh, did some classes with us, and we got the speech about like it's really important to train with different people. Um, just you never know. You might meet that one guy who says, "You know what? When you throw that kick, visualize kicking through a door." Mm. Whereas the other teacher's like, no, just lift your knee, rotate your hip, and extend. Like, And those are two great ways to explain it, but one of them is going to affect someone way better than the other person. Yeah, one might jive with you, one might Absolutely. not. Absolutely. Yeah. One coach might jive with you, one might not. And they can both be excellent coaches. Yeah. You and know? you're so holding you have to find the right back. combination. Yeah, exactly. if you don't experience different people, which was, uh, I was super excited to come train with you. The, unfortunately, the only, only one time I've been able to, but... It was, uh, yeah, that was that was great. And it's funny that we're now talking about that with you about how uh, those different experiences happen. Yeah. We, uh, I've been actually conversing uh, through Facebook with Brian Bird today. Yep. And he's like, I've never done a podcast. What does it look like? Oh. And so I'm explaining it all to him. And I'm like, hang on a second. I said, Nick's coming tonight. Won't you message Nick and ask him how it went? And then you can agree whether I can explain it all. And I did, but, uh, well, you know what? You'll love to have Brian on too. He's uh, he's, he's very well-spoken. You yeah. know what I mean? He's, he's, he's got a great history with yes. MMA too, which is, I, I'm really want to dig into. Well, Brian is one of the pioneers for, you know, jujitsu here in Calgary. You know yeah. I mean? Back when Brian started, uh, he was, <laughs> He was doing the uh, Gracie in action videotapes. And, nice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're training Get your blue state. belt yeah. by VHS. Well, you know what I mean? They're just <laughs> they're just watching these things and learning off the videos. And you I know, think David Lee did the same thing. I, you know, I, I think everybody in Canada, that's how we they had did no it. other way to get there it. There was no other way to get it. I mean, yeah. you had those VHS yeah. tapes. and We're kind of at that point in MMA where anyone who's like a veteran at this point had to have started doing karate or taekwondo or learning jujitsu from a videotape because it's, it's not that old yet. No. And like, what are we looking at? Like, no gi as a common thing. I only, that's got to be 10 years as a common thing that you could walk into most clubs and experience. Yeah. And in a lot of clubs still you go into and they're like, no, no, you have to do the gi stuff and then we'll show you the no gi stuff. Like they, they think the gi, and maybe they're right. I don't know. But the, that the gi stuff is more important. And I've done both. Honestly, I'm, I'm not a fan of gi stuff and it's maybe a lack of understanding, a lack of whatever on my part. But no-gi stuff, I, I love it. It's so much fun. I prefer no-gi as well. Yeah. You know, I've done a little bit of gi training. Like, a, my belt testing was all training with a gi. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm, by, I'm no expert at the gi, you know, period. You know, grappling is grappling. But, I mean, the no-gi and the gi, I mean, I think I think it's good to do both. I really do. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I was an MMA fighter. Yeah. You know, first and foremost. So, I mean, I, I spent most of my time doing just no gi, you know. So, I mean. Uh, we trained with um, uh, Grant Gunther, yep. which is out of there as well. Yep. He, he was teaching he's here a, He's town. up here, eh? Yeah. 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 He, uh, they, were, they were teaching just over Broken by the, Belt. Broken Belt was yeah. the name of the club. And he's an excellent guy to learn from as oh, well. Yeah. He's so, and I think he just earned his brown belt a couple months yep. ago. So, he's, he's, he's an awesome guy to train with. But again, he was one of those guys like, no, no, we have to do gi. We have to do gi. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I just want to find an ogi club that I can go and train at. 
I, re- I did no gi with him. Did you? Yeah. What did Here? you do? What did you do to piss him off? I don't know, but he <laughs> only let me do key stuff with the gi on, bitch. Yeah, yeah that's exactly well, what it was. It could just be different times, though, right? Like, yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Things things evolve yeah. or change. What do you think about uh, no gi versus gi? I've always uh, I think no gi is way harder, but you sweat a lot more in a gi. Well, <laughs> I don't know, man, because like uh, with the no gi, like it's a uh, it's maybe a little bit more faster and looser of a game, you know, like. Uh, uh, with the gi, I mean, for instance, I think it's really good to learn how to do positional escapes learning with the gi because there's a lot more right. friction. It makes it a lot harder. You have to be a lot more technical yep. with the gi. You have to be a lot more technical, you know, in that in that regard. I mean, I mean, if you're training for an MMA fight, uh, I mean, maybe you're not going to need to know all the, you know. The grips. The and, grips uh, and stuff yeah. like that. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on what your goal is. Right. Do you want to be a grappler? I mean, if you want to be a full-time grappler, yeah, absolutely. You should learn the gi, you know? Mm-hmm. You should also do no gi, you know? If you're going to be an MMA fighter, uh, you can do a, maybe a little bit of gi training, you yeah. know? But I think their primary focus should be probably no gi. Right. But I don't think, you know, there's no excuse to be totally ignorant of uh, either side, One right? It's other, just that yeah. there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. As an MMA fighter, I mean... You know, like you're gonna you're gonna grapple, but you also have to make time to kickbox, box, wrestle. Yeah. You know, we do, do someone, your weights. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, if if that means that you're not doing gi, yeah. you know, and you're getting all that other stuff you need to do, then you should do that. Yeah, I think we just saw what was in the last UFC here. Someone using Wing Chun in the ring. So, I guess there's there's room for all kinds of different things that you can. Anderson could be Silva doing, was using uh, what's it called? JKD. Uh, JKD. Combat JKD. Yeah. yeah. In um, I'm trying to remember which fight it was. Oh, this is like a year ago, I, I think. I think it's when he fought Bisbing. He got his back up against the cage, and he was calling Bisbing in, and as big as Bing was punching, he was just trapping and pushing and trapping and pushing, and, it, you know, he was trying it. He, I don't know that it was all that effective. But. Yeah. That is what I love about MMA, too. I mean, you know, uh, there's such a wide range of things that work, mm-hmm. you know, now, what works? I don't know. It depends on who you are, you know? I mean, you, you could make a lot of things work in an MMA cage, you know? So you got to really find what the best combination for you is. Like, yeah. out of the, I don't know, maybe there's 200 moves or 500 moves that you could do. I mean, really, you got to narrow it down to your best 10. Yeah. You know, which Learn ones are, yeah, which ones are your moves and get really good at those 10. That's actually something I, sorry, I'm just going to introduce Yeah, go ahead. Something I've been thinking, I think, well, I think a lot about it's my style. I, I've, I really believe in being weird and unusual as opposed to being really good. Just <laughs> So what, you like breathe on their neck and you well, whisper actually, in their ear actually, and smell yeah, good. Chad, Chad, you can take this one, eh, with the weird stuff I do when you, no one will grapple with me. But, yeah. <laughs> well, keeps, um, this guy, he keeps whispering in my ear. It's like yeah. weird. Yeah. Oh, you smell so yeah, good. I'm, I'm the guy that does ballet in yeah. sparring, right? I'm yeah. the guy twirling and spinning purely for the fact that I'm not very good at it, but they're not expecting it. Yeah. And when you fight someone who's a decent martial artist, they get kind of stuck in their ways. They, they learn to look for certain things. And when you do something weird, it usually gets through. It's a pattern recognition in most martial arts, right? Is that that that's what you're drilling into your head that when you know this shoulder drops, this hand's coming, so this is the defense and this is your counter. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you train only one style, like w- we saw that with uh, karate guys coming in in the very beginning of the UFC, and they were just getting demolished by everybody. There's 
their patterns were so basic, they're getting smashed. And then you look at Stephen Wonderboy Thompson now, or GSP, or something. he's not getting smashed at well, all. Same with uh, Machida. Machida, he had exactly. a very good career implementing his karate. Exactly. You know? Now he learned he learned all the other stuff because I mean, there's a few cores that you have to have, to have, have yeah. down. Oh, for but sure. Yeah. After having all those other bases. You know, down. I mean, yeah, he was able to very successfully use his karate stuff. You know, yeah. and uh, Stevens the same way. It There's threw all... people off too because you know it's not like not like the standard MMA fighter. You right. know, he's moving different, so he's able to catch. Like, yeah. uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Like uh, going from like crazy unexpected stuff to just being really good at the basics. How do, how do you feel that balances out? You have to be good at the basics, mm-hmm. you know, and if you're able to pull off the unexpected stuff and get really good at them, then right. yeah, you can. Yeah, you know, like it's kind of a balance. Eh? Well, it's More kind so, of a balance. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, look at like leg locks, for instance. Like, very few people get very good at them mm-hmm. you know, to where they can pull it off. Yep. But then you look at uh, Don guys. Her Death Squad, right? Those well, guys. Well, how about uh, that Paul Harris guy too? Uh, Paul Harris, yeah. yeah, really good at the leg locks. Now he's so good at them that you know he can pull them off and. You know, most people, they don't take the time to get that good at yeah, that, right. and, you know, but it worked very well for him, right? So. I listened to a brilliant podcast with uh, uh, Donaher, because they call his jiu-jitsu crew the Donaher Death Squad, and they all focus so much on the legs, and that's what's winning tournaments uh, around the world in jiu-jitsu, and he's like, why are we giving up on 50% of the body? We're not allowed to hit here. Like, you, you can grab onto a leg with all your money, and you're not going to get punched in the face, unless, of course, you're in an Eddie Bravo Open. Now they're, they're doing combat jiu-jitsu, but, you know, he focused on what's the best way to get a hold of the leg and, and, and get the win from there, and their guys are dominating, and now everybody's looking at legs. I think Paul Harris was uh, the first guy that really brought it out in mm-hmm. MMA, and everyone, oh, we can do this. It's been done. Now we all can do this, yep. and they go fight and find their way in their own system and start developing it. Mm-hmm. But So you have to have someone doing the odd stuff so that someone can say, oh, that works, and then they implement that into their system, right? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, yeah. It's mastery over innovation. Yeah. I don't know, it's just me looking for my own personal advice, right? Because we, we can only fight to our level. Like when someone says, like, you can't pull that off in the pros, I'm like, well, I'm not a pro, so it's working fine for me right I, now. I can but pull it off on the skinny little white belt right now. That's right, yeah. <laughs> the guy who's like 50 pounds lighter than me and it's like his first month, this guy is just, I can wreck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, you guys, we've been at this for an hour and a half. Nick, thank you so much for yeah. coming out. I think we definitely have to have a, a sequel to this. So I think there's way more to, to We would love to have you out again for here. sure. Um, we're the first to get Nick uh, Nick Ring on a podcast. And yeah, so beautiful. hopefully we'll be the preference for you when uh, when the call comes in. I had like a ton more questions I want to ask you, but we don't want to keep yeah, you yeah. here too long. Well, you know what? We'll do a part two. You know, sweet, yeah. sweet. We could I'll nerd back, all, this, so. all night, I think, there for we sure. <laughs> well, that's lucky because I'm a huge nerd. So oh, there thing. you go. I think we could get back into the real estate stuff too. I uh, I love real oh, estate yeah. and business. Oh, so. and we've got into nutrition and business and there fighting. We and well, we had a we had a nice wide range, didn't we? Yeah. So yeah. I, think I think the problem is is we have a lot of sidetracks we get onto with most of our guests, and unfortunately, well, not not unfortunately, fortunately for us, uh, our topic tonight is one of our biggest sidetracks we get onto. Exactly. <laughs> well, this is uh, Chad and Mark with I Want to Know and special guest Nick Ring, and uh, uh, I wanted to put it out there for everybody we're not hearing a lot from our uh from our followers and so we want to hear back from you guys we want to hear what you guys think about the podcast what you want to hear what you don't want to hear what you like what you don't like so uh once again unless it's me <laughs> don't mark, comment about don't, that. don't come about mark he'll do some weird ballet shit on you that's right i'll go ballet <laughs> yeah. twirling you don't want to see the twirling all right thank you everybody have a good night have a good night